You're listening to a special From the Archives edition of The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center. In addition to our weekly series, which presents in-depth conversations with today's leading filmmakers, every month we share a favorite selection from our archives, spanning more than 40 years of the New York Film Festival, Chaplin Award Galas, and other series, retrospectives, and special events. Today we're bringing you a 2006 conversation with legendary writer, filmmaker, and critic Paul Schrader. Schrader had just published an article in Film Comment entitled Cannon Fodder, in which he dissected the criteria by which we determine what films deserve to be called the greatest of all time. In an appendix to the piece, he offered a list of the films he considers worthy of canonization. At the top of the list, Jean Renoir's Rules of the Game. You can find a link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. In the conversation, Schrader talks about his interest in exploring film history through technological advancement. Now, nearly a decade later, he has pursued this interest with a series for film comment entitled Game Changers, the fifth installment which explores the birth and influence of slow, fast, and reverse motion appears in the July-August issue, now available in print and digital editions. For more information, visit filmcomment.com. The evening was moderated by the New York Film Festival's Director of Programming, Kent Jones. As we join the conversation, Kent is asking Paul how he became interested in film canons. So let's just begin with a summary of this project, which um, resulted from having dinner with Walter Donahue in London, right, from Faber and Faber. Yeah, uh, a few years ago I was getting an award at the British Museum, the Orange Award, and had dinner with Walter Donahue and somebody from the Independent. And the conversation went to this whole proliferation of lists uh, and how the whole film world and and critical business has become dominated by all these best of kind of lists. You know, the the 1,000 movies you should see before you die, which is the latest one, which is um, uh, I just saw in the bookstore in London. Uh, and probably after you see them, you, you, you probably... You'll be ready to die. You'll yeah. be ready to die. Right. <laughs> uh, the, and, uh, and I suggested you know, someone do a book a la Harold Bloom's Western Canon, uh, which was a extremely elitist enterprise, the opposite of, um, of what had been going around in terms of uh, uh, the most popular films, the best lines, the, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and someone says, you know, the guy from The Independent said, you, you know, you should write that book. And, and I, unfortunately, we've all been drinking and uh, I looked at Walter, and Walter said, well, if you write it, I'll publish it. And, uh, and uh, that was that. And then, so that took up about three years of my life. And as I got into it, I realized that it really wasn't about making a list. Uh, and even though Gavin prevailed upon me to put a list in the article, it really started to become about this whole notion uh, of canonicity. And because I started saying, well, here are the films that I think are, you know, the rarefied few. But I couldn't really pin down why I was picking these films, other than the fact that I knew they were great. And I wanted 
some more objective criterion, so I started looking at traditional notions of what uh, canonicity was, what it was to be in the literary or musical canon. And that took me into uh, an investigation of the concept of the canon, which took me to an investigation of the history of aesthetics, which sent me back to Columbia, and uh, I had to take some courses, and, uh, and this thing just sort of grew and grew. The, uh, what uh, I found interesting, more, more interesting than actual films, and, and, and I, there's very little talk about actual films in the article. I, I found interesting that, that we're all, we all have this big investment in uh, the idea of a canon, the best of best films of the year, the best films of the decade, the best films of film history, the best British films, the best female performances. Um, but that whole notion is, is relatively new. And it came up in the 17th century with the Enlightenment. And it came up when uh, the religious underpinning of art fell away. And reason, replaced religion as one of the driving forces of art. And the concert hall replaced the cathedral, the art academy replaced the um, seminary, and, and these new secularists, and, uh, and, and, and a number of them were quite upfront about it, saying that, you know, Matthew Arnold said that he felt that eventually art would replace religion. Well, if you have, uh, if you're creating a new religious infrastructure, you've got to have a canon. And a canon is a religious term that was used to describe the canonical books. That is, the books that made it into the Bible as opposed to the apocryphal uh, literature, which was not canonical. So, uh, canons started to be created, and uh, they um, it flirted with them, you know, some kind of prototype canons, like, you know, from, you know, Dante and uh, uh, various others, but really the Brits were the ones who really got into this game, and uh, Addison and then Arnold, and, and they, were, uh, they were also champions of the empire. And so the whole notion of the canon came out of, the, uh, out of reason replacing religion and the empire dictating taste. And, and that was a world where the, the arts became relatively fixed. There were the Beaux-Arts and there were the high arts and the low arts and the select few. Uh, but, you know, this, this whole notion of, of elitist art is not that old. It's only several hundred years old. And it, it started in the 1700s. It didn't really hit stride until the 1800s. And uh, by the 1900s, it was gone. So uh, when people talk about the notion of the canon, 
there's a kind of misconception that, that it has to be. It doesn't have to be. It's only been with a relatively short time. The canon collapsed because of a number of factors, but first and foremost among them was technology, uh, i.e. motion pictures, uh, photography, recorded imagery, recorded music. And uh, because of uh, technological reproduction, the notion of, the, of what was a, a fine art started collapsing. And the, the distinction between high art and crafts started collapsing. And, and, and with it came a lot of other assumptions, which were uh, sort of Im imperial and, and colonial. And, and, you know, so right along with technology came um, new Marxism. Uh, you know, Henry Kissinger once said something very, very smart. And I think it's, it is true. He said that all of life is cyclical. It just repeats, except for two forces, technology and democracy. And these are the two horses that are tied together that pull history forward. And I think it's true. And I think if you look at history, you know, the technology keeps pulling the history forward. But every, every time technology moves forward, it, put, it increases democracy. And um, so you, you, know, you have lights at night, you know, therefore people can stay up later, not just the rich, but the ordinary people and so forth. Well, with the technology of film uh, and the technology of the arts, it just really expanded uh, what the arts were and what the definition of the arts were. Uh, I'm going to kind of abbreviate this because I, I could spend an hour just drifting uh, in this direction. Just to say that, uh, that what I discovered when investigating this was that film itself, motion pictures, was one of the three or four primary factors in the demise in our belief in the canon. One of the factors that undermined the fact that because the canon is, um, the supposition of a canon is that there is such a thing as high art. And, uh, and motion pictures undermine the whole concept of, of high art. And uh, uh, as did, you know, manufactured art and uh, ready-mades like Duchamp and, and uh, commercial art like uh, uh, Warhol. And so how, how can you then have a film canon if film itself is antithetical to canonicity. If, if film sort of was one of the factors that made the canon, the idea of the canon look ridiculous, how can you have a film canon? That was the intriguing question that uh, uh, I got hooked on and, and, uh, and that, that became to me in a way more interesting than individual films. And to try to come up with some kind of criteria because we can't, even though we don't believe in canons, we all use them, you know. Uh, everyone reads those best lists. Uh, every curricula uh, in every university 
is in fact a canon. You say we're going to we're going to do a, a documentary 101, and these are the ten films we're going to show. You just created a canon. So can, I, can I just repeat yeah. what you wrote in the in the piece, just to summarize that thought, which I think is central to the piece? Canons. <clears throat> Canon formation has become the equivalent of 19th century anti-sodomy laws repudiate, repudiate, repudiated in principle, performed in practice. So. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, and so I, you know, I, I started formulating a, uh, some, some ways we could adapt a, a kind of canon if we see film as a transitional phase in the history of art which I do now. I, I didn't uh, 30 years ago when I first started writing, but I now see the film as, 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 a, as a part of an artistic continuum. And, uh, and the phase we have known is pretty much coming to an end. I'm not quite sure what the next phase is. But film has been changing very, very fast for 100 years, and uh, it's going, going through another big change now. Uh, but if you see, film is part of the, uh, a continuing change in the notion of what art is, then you can come up with some criteria which I, I posit in the article. Um, and if I had gone on to, uh, then after writing that introduction I was going to do 20 essays uh, on 20 films employing my new criteria. At which point I sort of realized that I'd, I'd been doing that for the rest of my life, number one. Number two, I would be going over ground that is very, very well trod in terms of the masters, because I, I'm not going to posit any new masters. You know, it is rules of the game. It is Tokyo story, you know. Uh, and and there's a, there are shelves and shelves of literature on these works. And uh, so, at which point I abandoned the, the book. And, uh, and, uh, and that's how it ended up as an article here after uh, two or three years work at Film Comment. And uh, although the footnote is that uh, just last week in, uh, in London I had dinner again with Walter Donahue, whereupon this whole thing has started three years before and I agreed to do another book for Walter. <laughs> So, yeah, can I remind you of the last sentence in the preface, which is, well, the last two sentences, what can be gleaned from this adventure if Walter Donahue asks you to dinner in London, think twice. And but, yet, here you are. <laughs> but the new book I want to do for Walter has come out of my thinking of, of this whole canon, which is, I, I want to do a history of film as seen as technology. And it really comes out of this book David Hockney wrote called Secret Knowledge, where he discusses painting as optics. Uh, which is, you know, as a counterweight to all this kind of um, sentimental talk about film history as, uh, as great artists, you know, auteurs and great peaks of achievement. I, I said, wouldn't it be interesting if we did a film, history of film, just as technological advances and, and then discovering which are the um, individual craftsmen and artists who best seize upon the technology and, uh, and look at it uh, the other way around, you know? And so that's the book I'm gonna think about doing. Now, can, 
I thought it might be a good place to, a good thing to briefly summarize the criteria that, uh, that you came up with. And some of which are based on Harold Bloom's book and some of which you formulated on your own. The, uh, well, I, I did come up with some criteria. Uh, and I would have to, um, and I, but I never really got to uh, put them into practice because putting them into practice would have meant uh, uh, applying them in, in uh, uh, one film uh, after another. And, uh, and also, I would have written a separate chapter on Triumph of the Will, which I believe to be the quintessential film of the 20th century, the defining film. Fortunately, it was a documentary, so I didn't have to deal with it because I didn't have any documentaries in my list. But if you take all, if you, if you look at the history of 20th century art, somehow everything comes to play in Triumph of the Will. Uh, you know, the crossover between reality and fiction, the, uh, the movement of using fictional techniques to, for political purposes, uh, creating a whole new iconography of imagery, on top of which it was done by a woman, the, probably the single greatest film achievement by a woman, on top of it, which it was deeply pernicious and deeply powerful. I mean, you, you, you could teach a whole course on that film as, a, as the film of the, that defines 20th century motion pictures. Anyway, but uh, what, what I was talking about in uh, this kind of criterion, and uh, yeah, I, I, I like the idea, you know, uh, Harold Bloom used the term strangeness, and, uh, which is a, uh, another word for originality. And, uh, and so my criteria, which was this idea of the strange, you know, um, uh, Cocteau is more than original. He's also strange. There's an evocative word. Originality is quite, not quite enough. Uh, you know, it's not just enough to do something people haven't done in, before, you have to do it in a, in, in a, in a, in a strange way. Isn't uh, it a matter of what's familiar becoming defamiliarized? See, you're seeing everything as if you're seeing it for the first time. Yeah, I mean, I, like, see, David Lynch is strange. In, yes, in, he is. In a yeah. very, very interesting way. Uh, so are his films. Yeah. <laughs> Scorsese was original, but Scorsese was never strange. So it's an interesting kind of criteria. Um, the, uh, uh, and the, the, the biggest bugaboo of all, of course, is the whole concept of beauty. How, how, how do you get beauty back into the discussion? Because beauty was the heavyweight criterion of the 19th century. And, um, and beauty simply was disowned in this, in this in the, in the last century, you know, I mean, to the point where, uh, you know, artists like Picasso were saying that the purpose of art is not to be beautiful, you know, uh, whereas uh, beauty was one of the criterions. So you, you have to, re you, you can't just throw out beauty, because I don't know how you discuss art without having some notion of what beauty is. 
But then, you know, so, uh, uh, so I, I talked a little bit about beauty and strangeness. And then uh, a classical one, which is uni unity of form and subject matter, which is a very traditional one, but I think that you know, every time, you know, is this the best way to design a microphone? You know, the, uh, you know well, it's, it's probably not. I mean, there are many more beautiful ones. So then also you're talking about form and function, and, and that's uh, a, a valid thing to talk about in, in film as well. Um, and another important criterion is repeatability. Um, you know, uh, history has a strange way of, uh, of working on a, on, a, on a film. And some films really do grow. And, uh, and, and some don't. And, uh, and you, you often aren't really quite aware at the time. And uh, I'm at an age now where I've started recycling a lot of these films, you know, pr pr primarily with the help of the folks at Criterion. <laughs> and so every time Criterion comes out with a disc, I watch it again. And uh, it is interesting how some of them really stand up. Some of them grow, and some of them have just flatlined. And uh, and have, are receding into history as you watch them. Give an example of both. Well, I was surprised. I was a big fan of performance. Uh, the Nick Rogue Donald Campbell film. Uh, and I was editing a film magazine at the time. I put it on the cover of the film magazine. And then I hadn't seen it for 25 years. And when I saw it again, and I sort of thought that that it was a youthful kind of enthusiasm of mine. And I saw it again, and I, I said, this is actually better, I think, than I, really, than I knew it was when I first saw it. You know, because I can now see it without all the, the trappings of its time and place, all of the, you know, the hip London trappings. And, uh, and I, you know, I saw something that was really better. Uh, Give example of a film that just kind of flatlines. Um, I don't think. I don't think the 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 ones that didn't seem that much better uh, didn't seem as good as I thought they were. Were the the Ray films, not Nicholas. Such as your Ray. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but also probably Nicholas as well. Mm -hmm. I think that. Uh, um, you know, that films that start to recede into their genre, recede into their period, uh, whereas other films like 2001, which you really think is going to date, not only because the title is a predator <laughs> right past there. It, yeah. <laughs> and you look at it again, you say, wait a second, why isn't this film dating? Everything about it should be dated. It's all technology driven. All the technology is archaic. Why isn't this film dating? You know, it's a wonderful example to uh, to, uh, to look at it in that way. It's, it occurs to me that, that finding the criteria um, for the works that you select isn't that a way of trying to 
guess what time is going to do. It's a way of outguessing history in a way, the processes of history, of, of the, the, the way that things, some things stick and other things fall away. Yeah, I mean, you, you do it right now. I mean, a very interesting example is uh, Departed. Uh, Scorsese's new film, which is a very good film and is very su successful commercially. How kind will history be to that film? That's an interesting question. Uh, you know, when, when you look back at it 20 years from now and put it next to Goodfellas, you know, the film that it most closely resembles. You know, my guess is that the Goodfellas will look like a major league film and Departed will look like a minor league film 20 years from now. Right now, it's almost impossible to make that kind of judgment. But that's part of the game, you know, you, you play. Uh, but then you also have to realize sometimes that you're wrong, that you really thought that, uh, you know, some films would, uh, uh, you know, like, you know, like, like some of the kind of, particularly the sort of sentimental favorites, like those Hawks films. You know, you, you keep, every time you see one again, you, you always, oh, I thought it was, I thought it was a little bit better than that, you know. You were hoping because you, you, you had invested something in it being better. The, uh, the other criterion I had talked about, well, I, I raised the thorniest one of all, which is morality. I don't think you can talk about, a canon without bringing up the issue of morality, which is, you know, the the hardest one of all in 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 the morality discussion. I started bringing up triumph of the will, and uh, and then also film. There's another criterion that is not so much used in other art, but I think it's valuable in film because film is inherently such a passive art form. You know, you don't do a damn thing in a movie; you just sit there. You don't, even, you don't turn a page, uh, you know. And so there's an element of viewer engagement that I think makes a film endure. The ability of a film to pull the audience into its atmosphere, into its realm, as opposed to what most films do, which is simply sit on your lap and make you feel good for two hours, you know. And uh, so those films, by whatever techniques they use, that get you to come at them, rather than coming at you in every way they can, coming at you in likability of the character, uh, reinforcement of emotional attitudes through the music, you know, refusing to let you be bored by the way a film is shot and cut. Films that start, breaking that pattern and start challenging you to join the creative uh, dialogue that's going on. In the end, those are part of the many of the films that endure because they've not treated you like a fool and they've been smart enough to know what you as a viewer can contribute to the exchange that's now going on. This is much more relevant in film than it is in other arts because uh, film does induce passivity and that uh, smart filmmakers realize this and realize they have to, have to get around that passivity in some way if a film is to endure. So it's the mutual seduction theory of film instead of the lap dance. <laughs> <laughs>
So the first clip that we're going to do is actually the number one film on your list, um, which is a film that was actually uh, despised when it first came out. So it's a very good example of something where time is actually, uh, you know, operated in a really interesting way. Yeah, well, a number of the films that we now consider as uh, classics were uh, financial failures. Uh, uh, Citizen Kane, uh, Vertigo, Searchers, Tank, you know, one and all. So, uh, uh, you know, box office and initial reaction is not uh, uh, necessarily the thing. That was, that was from Rules of the Game by Jean Renoir, and, and um, I, I've often felt that, you know, if you have to take one film to represent the entire history of film, you know, somebody says, somebody co comes off a time machine and says, I've never seen a motion picture, uh, you know, and you have to pick one, I, I think I'd pick this one because uh, it, it hits on all the cylinders, it does all those things that movies really uniquely do. Here, you know, the ability of film to work a large canvas, multi-character drama, ensemble casting. But, you know, the way Renoir hits each of those notes, like on that keyboard, all, you know, you just saw a little clip of it here, but all of those players at the end of the movie are heartfelt and true players, and you care for each one of them. And the way he uses his camera to um, to do that rondelay of all of those people is a, 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 as good a match of, of form and content as you can get of, of having the, the right tools to do that job and doing it just right. And then when you talk about Renoir, you get involved in the whole uh, morality issue and the morality of, of this movie is quite transcendent and, and you know coming as it did in 39 and it essentially being embargoed because of war and other factors uh, and, and it being about the demise of a whole class and a whole world and using film to show that demise of that world. Uh, you know, the world of the, uh, of the light show and the puppets is, is over in the, in the world of cinema. And, uh, and, uh, and so it also, there is a strength, it, it has all those elements. It, we would have been, you know, I, I said in the article, what Bloom did in, uh, Western Ken, he said, look, if you're going to have a canon, what is, what, what author can you not have a canon without? It's Shakespeare. If, you, if Shakespeare's not on the list, the canon's no good. He said, what work of Shakespeare can you not do without? Hamlet. If Hamlet's not on the list, it, it, you know, you shouldn't have Shakespeare. So he said, okay, so let's look at Hamlet and say, what is it about Hamlet that makes it canonical? And then that's what I had intended to do when writing about this film. Because uh, uh, you stuck to one film per yeah, filmmaker. Yeah. 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 And uh, to say, you know, I, you can't have a canon without Renoir, and you can't have Renoir without Rules of the Game. So what is it about Rules of the Game that makes it so definingly canonical? And, and that, that was the article I was going to write next. But some interesting 
things about Rules of the Game, some interesting issues. I mean, just one thing is that according to Raymond Durniat in his book on Jean Renoir, and he, by the way, is someone who would have probably take issue with your idea of passive viewership. Um, he was very good on the idea that there are a lot of processes that the viewer um, goes through, that even when they're not aware of them. That there's a lot of a lot of mental work that goes into watching even a not so good film. But according to Durniat, the shooting of this film was, you know, when, when Renoir went into the editing room and when he handed all of his uh, footage over to Marguerite Renoir, his, his editor, he just handed a pile of stuff and he had no idea what to do with it. He had shot so much and the film is, seems very, very carefully planned and thought out. Um, but he had gone in many, many different directions. And the film wasn't just embargoed, it was actually, it, it, it was embargoed, but, but when it was, when it opened, it was um, so hated so despised that someone actually tried to set fire to the theater um, on opening night. Renoir tells that story, or told that story. Um, and he, he cut the film in an effort to try to make it more palatable. Then the negative was destroyed during the war and there was a lot of work done to reconstitute the original cut and in 1958, something close to the original version was, was put together. And that's when the film really uh, um, achieved its its um, status, um, but it is a movie that's more than it's about more than just a bunch of people having a good time in the country. Um, and this question of morality is directly linked to the very famous line in the film: "Everyone has their reasons," which Renoir's character enunciates. Um, do you have anything to? No. Um, the uh, I'm just looking at my at your watch. At my watch, because I was wondering uh, at some point we're going to you're going to win a want to turn this over and you have some more clips too. Yeah, why don't we um, actually, instead of, why don't we go right now to um, clip number three instead of clip number two. And the film that we're going to um, be looking at is Pickpocket by Robert Bresson, which is a film that, um, in addition to being a great film, has also been a movie that's been very important to you as a, as a filmmaker. Yeah, I mean, I, this didn't come out in Los Angeles until 69, it was released in 59. I was a reviewer at the time. And when I saw this film, it really was one of those epiphany kind of Paul on the road to Damascus moments. And, uh, because, and, and I ended up writing about it for two weeks continue, uh, straight in the LA Free Press where I was writing. And it impacted me a lot as a person, as a critic. I ended up writing a book about it. Bresson, but also it started impacting me as a screenwriter because I started thinking about writing scripts, which I hadn't done up to that point. I was just a critic. Because I saw a kind of a movie that I could make, that I understood. You know, a movie about a guy who sort of um, goes from place to place and looks in on other people's lives but doesn't have a life of his own that lives in a room and that is involved in some kind of ongoing and slightly disreputable enterprise. And all the while you think nothing is happening underneath him, the earth is shifting, and you realize at the end that everything has moved. And I saw this movie and I thought, you know, and it comes out of the existentialist tradition. It comes out of Dostoevsky and Sartre and Camus. And uh, I thought, you know, that's something I sort of know. I, I think I could do something like that. I hadn't thought of my, because I didn't see movies as a child and, and wasn't that committed to uh, 
commercial cinema per se, I didn't really didn't see any place for me other than as a critic. I saw this movie, I thought, gee, maybe there is a kind of movie I can actually do myself. And uh, so out of that experience of watching Pickpocket, uh, eventually it came Taxi Driver and uh, American Gigolo, uh, Light Sleeper, the new one, The Walker, is the same kind of character again. He gets older, he gets more interesting, uh, and he changes. And, uh, but so it, it, so it, it's an important film for me, but uh, I would defend it on more than personal terms because I also think it's a great film and it has uh, uh, all of Brissot's work for the, for the black and white period have, have really held up and you find more and more younger people referencing Brissot now than, than they did uh, in his lifetime. Let's go to that clip. There'll be copies of the New York Times out front so that you can all try that on your way home. Um. <laughs> no, but it's always interesting with Bresson to look at what isn't there. I mean, the main thing that isn't there is music. The other thing that isn't there is... Um, acting. Is acting. Or, or, or facial close-ups. Um, and the, the cutting is... Inten you know, this isn't just because it's 1959. They didn't cut films like this in 1959 either. You know, normally when you edit a film, you, you drop the splice just before the action is completed and you put the next splice before, after the next action begins. So the door never really closes. You know, you, you, the door almost closes and you cut and it's already opening. It's just a way of speeding things along in a film and compressing time. With Bresson, you're doing the opposite. The door closes. One, two, three, cut. Cut to another door. One, two, three, the door opens. Now, it's not because he didn't know what he was doing. I mean, you know, and when people see that in films, they, they get thrown by it because they think it's somehow bad filmmaking. But it is a, a, a very... Uh, decided and, and decidedly perverse way to fool with your, with your notion of what time in a movie is and trying to change how you're watching the film so that he can start to work at you from another angle. And uh, so like you'll have this whole section without music. And then right out of the middle of nowhere, a scene that doesn't call for music, you get this huge burst of Mozart which is not tied to any emotion whatsoever. And, and, and bit by bit, he is manipulating how you, he's playing with how you watch movies to try to get you to go to another place and yet also keep you in the theater, keep you from walking out, which is a big problem when you work in a, in a minimalist or, or reductive way, when you're taking away from the audience things that they like, music, excessive emotion, colorful uh, landscapes, when you're, when, you're, you know, when you're taking that away from them, you have to find some way to keep them interested or they're just gonna leave. And, and, and it's, it's your fault too if they leave. So, you know, Bresson, that's why Bresson 
is probably the most unsuccessfully imitated director there is because it looks so simple and it isn't and filmmakers after filmmakers have tried to do what he did and they just can't do it because it is, there is a mystery to how you take away things that the audience wants and make them still interested in what you have. The element of sound is also really unusual yeah. because every single sound is distinct and registers rhythmically. Which is yeah, and it's not all, and it's not live sound. You know, it's all being, you know, it's all articulated sound. Yeah. You know, individual footsteps, individual sound of train, you know, it's not like they, you, you're just hearing what the microphone Hi, I'm Violet Luca, digital editor of Film Comment magazine. The July-August issue of Film Comment is now available in print and digitally for $5.95. In addition to Paul Schrader's latest Game Changer essay on filmmaking, we have our annual Cannes coverage, including a view of the Cannes market, a candid interview with Noah Baumbach about his upcoming screwball comedy with Greta Gerwig, Mistress America. Plus. Amy Taubman explains how The Diary of a Teenage Girl breaks new ground in portraying female sexuality, Kent Jones takes in the beauty of Pedro Costa's new film Horse Money, and much more. It only takes one issue of Film Comment to know that you have to read them all. Visit filmcomment.com for more information about subscribing. And now, back to the close-up. I'm going to repeat the question, yeah. Paul. This is a question about <coughs> Paul's um, comment that the landscape of contemporary cinema is changing very, very rapidly and um, a question about exactly where Paul thinks it's going. Well, I mean, I, I think the, the 20th century notion of film is, is dead. Uh, film will never be what it was in the 20th century. It will never have that kind of power, socially, artistically. It is uh, going to be, just at that level, it's going to be marginalized. It already has, is greatly marginalized from the kind of social power it had uh, 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, and that's just speaking of film as a, as a social force. In terms of technology, what we call motion pictures is, is a kind of a horse and buggy technology. And uh, in fact, of all of the uh, technologies out there, in some ways, film is still one of the oldest. Uh, now we're, that, they don't have film in that camera, but if they did, you would be pumping light through a piece of transparent film, which is what they did 100 years ago. You know, name me a technology that's operating on the same principle today. Uh, now, all the forms of technology around film are changing so fast. And I, I, I don't just mean filmmaking, I mean more importantly distribution, how we see films, how we perceive films. And uh, what is it becoming? Boy, I don't know. And I know what it's not. It's, it's not going to be what it was. Um, and it will probably be seen by most people as worse. But then most people saw film as worse than what came before it. You know, I remember Renoir telling me, you know, he was so happy when film came along because his father hated film. And his father was a powerful known painter and, and there was no way to get out from August's shadow and all of a sudden if you made movies, 
it was disreputable and it was a way he could get away from his father. So uh, we, we forget now that you know movies began as a disreputable art form and the same way that video games are a disreputable art form today. Uh, maybe the new uh, Jean Renoir would be working in the video game world. But that brings up, that begs the question, are video games really an art form? I think they're on the way. I honestly do. And they're on, on the way in a, in a way that we can't define because it challenges the notion of artist and consumer. Mm. Because it starts to fool around with the relationship of the maker and the, and the, uh, and the buyer. And um, I've, I've, actually, I, as a screenwriter, I've thought about doing multiple path stories and trying to figure out you know, what is the, is the delivery medium best for a multiple path story. No, so if you want to do rules of the game in a, a six-hour version where you could follow any one of those characters a little more, you say, you know, I, I really you know, like August, I'd like to know more about him. Well, I'll, I'll let me push the August button and, and follow him for a bit and mm -hmm. maybe get his backstory a little bit when he was growing up. Um, that's kind of where we're heading, and it is really sort of scary because uh, artists are dictators by, by, um, by nature, and, uh, and you're realizing that the, the art form is pushing you, in a way, toward democracy. I mean, it's one thing for me to talk about the great power of democracy, but God forbid they ever apply it to me. You know, I mean, <laughs> Franz Scoble said, you know, the great thing about the filmmaker is uh, about directing is it's the last refuge of dictators in the 20th century. <laughs> um, and uh, so, you know, film artists, uh, all artists love to talk about democracy for somebody else. Uh, but God forbid they have to become democratic with their power. But if, the media, if technology is driving democracy, then maybe we're looking at a situation where the artist is not, doesn't have the kind of power he once did, or that he starts to create a, a, a world where he has to share the power. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I... I so, yeah. Well, yeah, this is, just to summarize, this is a question about, as opposed to the future of film, the past of film, and the supposition um, that there are two distinct histories of film, one being American, which is strictly tied to business, so it's according to this gentleman, the other being the rest of the world, where um, it's not just strictly tied to business and where it's more experimental. I, I, that's a yeah, I mean, I, I, I would have to disagree because movies always took money to make. And somebody had to lay money on the table. It wasn't like writing a poem or, 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 or painting your shoe. Somebody had to pay for it. And the person who had to pay for it wanted to get his money back. Now, there were different cultural prism through which this was perceived. But there were, the history of film is the history of entrepreneurs and of investments. And, uh, and uh, you know, in some cultures and in some countries, it was commercially more viable to be daring than it was in others. But I don't think there was 
ever a territory that wasn't driven by film finances. Yeah, and by the same token, also, I mean, despite the, the rhetoric of the studio bosses, I mean, some of them, you know, during the heyday of the system were, were very interested um, in art, or they tolerated it, or they encouraged it in some kind of backhanded way. Yeah, no, I, I think you're talking about national traditions. Uh, you know, I mean, you could throw Bollywood into the discussion if you want to. I mean, there is a national tradition, and, and I'm sure some people will say, us Indians, you know, all we care about is Bollywood. We don't really care about art. So it, it, it's more of a cultural factor than, I think, a, a, a film factor. This is a question about Paul's book, Transcendental Style in Cinema. Um, which actually grew out of your master's thesis, was it? Yeah. Your yeah, and, it, which, and just to summarize briefly, which you know, is specifically about Bresson, Dreyer, and Ozu. And the question is, what is it, this man is challenging the idea of the, the transcendental style, and the question is, what is it that makes the styles of these filmmakers transcendental, as opposed to just another style, not on, you know, like the style of, of Kurosawa, the style of Renoir, et cetera. And Paul, just, just to... Um, Bresson's Pickpocket is on your list. Dreyer's Day of Wrath is the one that you chose? No, no, no. No, the, or is the, it Passion the, of Joan of Arc? No, the, uh, Jean d'Arc. Passion of Joan of Arc. And then by Ozu is Tokyo Story, which yeah. I think is number three on your list. Uh, the, the, the questioner was asking me about you know, whether, what, what makes me think these films can be transcendent. And the answer is I, can't, I, I cannot answer that because you know, one man's Transcendence is the next man's eminence, and, and, and but uh, but what these filmmakers share, and what I saw in them, see, because I had come from religious upbringing, I'd gone to uh, seminary, and I had learned all I had learned all of the the techniques of the of religious art, you know, the the distance, the quiet. The, uh, how to use time, space, music to create religious feeling. And then the cinema was the absolute opposite, was, was the, the art form of, of gratification. And so there I was in Los Angeles as a critic, and all of a sudden I started seeing these movies, and I said, wait a second, I, there's a bridge here, there's a bridge from a world that I came from, which I thought had sunk into the sea, or hoped had sunk into the sea, uh, and the world I'm in now, which of course is going to burst on fire any moment. <laughs> uh, very apocalyptic imagination. And, uh, and so the book came out of that desire to create that bridge, that bridge between those styles that create stasis, quietude, introspection, enlightenment, and cinema, which for the most part does the opposite. And what does it mean to be a film artist trying to work in this atmosphere? And who, and the precious few who have tried, and there's more than three who have tried, I think these three are the most successful, although uh, today I would add Alexander Sokoroff to that list uh, as, as one who has been successful in doing this. But it's very, very difficult because you work against the medium, the nature of the medium itself. Everything about film uh, militates against quietude 
and stasis and introspection. Motion pictures are kiss, kiss, bang, bang. Go, go. They're the kinetic medium. And when you use a medium against itself, what does that mean? And can you actually get away with it? And that's the interesting thing about those filmmakers and that book. And, and they, so, so, so they're up to some kind of transcendence. Now, whether they actually succeed, film by film is, is changes, and, and viewer by viewer changes. You know, maybe they succeed in one part of one film for one viewer, and maybe for another viewer they, they succeed all the time. But it, it's, it's, what's inter interesting is what they're up to more than whether they actually succeed for you. No, no, it's is an it, entirely valid. Uh, let's just bring, yeah, just summarize again. This is the, this is a question about the criteria that Paul uses, and and from this gentleman's standpoint, the criteria are not that specific, and don't quite take you to um, a level where when you're reading the choices, you think this is you know definitively anything more than just you know personal choices. No, I mean it's a, it's an ex uh, 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 absolutely valid. Uh, uh, criticism. Uh, basically, what I was doing in the introduction, which is what you do in an introduction, was raising the flag. In this case, raising a half dozen flags that I would then attempt to fly uh, down the road in the service of one film or another. Uh, and since I punked on the whole book, I never really got to force those flags into action and say, you know, this is how we take the strangeness argument vis-a-vis -vis Orfe, and we make it, you really understand how the strangeness argument works, you know. And so without the uh, application, uh, they are kind of um, fuzzy labels. And, and I, um, I, I, um, I grant you your, <laughs> your, your, your criticism. But isn't the formulation of any criteria necessarily going to be suppositional? I mean, there's no way that anyone could, could generate definitive criteria. No, but I mean, you, you can make it less fuzzy by putting it in action, you know. Uh, and, you know, if you talk about um, repeatability or uh, unity of form and function, then finally you start looking at specific films and you say, you know, here's a film that really shows you how, do, how they use these film tools for these reasons, and the shape of the thing and the meaning of the thing are entirely sunk up. Sometimes, or vice versa, are desunk for a reason, as in Bresson. Uh, and, uh, and so you can start to understand that much more than you do when it's just a, a, a kind of fuzzy label. At this point, I just want to go to the last, and it's a, it's a brief clip that we have um, before we finish up the discussion and take some more questions. And it's the, actually, I think, the most recent film on, on your list, which is In the Mood for Love by Wong Kar Wai. Um, that's the fourth clip. So we can just go right to that. I was reluctant to include a film so recent, but I don't think I've ever seen this film as many a time, many times in such a short time since this film came out. I saw it first here at the New York Film Festival. And what was it, like three, four years ago now? Yeah, so six, seven years ago. I think I must have seen it now 20 times. And I finally just had a, you know, it just 
seemed to me so much of what a great film was, and I'd seen it so many times, I just said, it's got to be there. But I'll tell you a fascinating story about this film. And, and it, they shot this film for over a year, thir 13 months. Carwai, before this film, had been doing a lot of film, a lot of kinetic films with um, uh, sexual activity and young people and running around. And, you know... The fluid uh, slow motion effect. And yeah. The yeah, I mean, the, the titles themselves. Uh, the Year of, what, The Year of Living Dangerously? No, that? no, no, that's the Peter Weir. Um, no, uh, Days of Being Wild. Days uh, of Being Wild. As tears go by. Yeah. Chunking yeah, Express. Yeah, so the, the titles give away what he was up to. And he makes this film. And, and they start shooting sexual material. And, you know, you hear the stories, oh, they're just, you know, they're shooting fucking. But it changes during the course of it. And bit by bit, it starts becoming another film. And it starts becoming a film about loss and regret. And in the end, all the sexual material, sexual material is gone. Not a bit of it is left. And another film was born while they were making it. And one of the most amazing things, if you're a student of film, is to buy the Criterion Double DVD. And in the extras, you will see in the deleted scenes the best scene in the film. <laughs> And, and the best scene of the film is with Maggie Chung and Tony Leung on a bed in a little lover's hotel. And they're doing a kind of a, a song comes on the radio and it's a kind of 50s hitchhike song like this. And they start singing it together. Two shot. It is magical. Your, your heart just pounds in your chest and they look so alive, so much in love. And it, it just is a killer of a scene. And it's not in the movie because it would have unbalanced the film. And boy, you know, that is a hard, hard lesson that you have to learn as a filmmaker. Sometimes you not only have to kill your baby, sometimes you have to kill the prettiest ones. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but he was absolutely right. If he had put that scene in the movie, that would have been the scene everyone would have remembered. That would have been the scene that every reviewer would have seized upon. And it wasn't what the movie became. And uh, so for, for those who um, not only enjoy but study films, it's a very interesting thing to watch. This is a, a, a question about the unity criterion, the, the unity form, the unity of form and content. And it, it, actually, the gentleman who's asking the question had seen, um, had been to the very good exhibit that's at the Met right now, the Cezanne de Picasso exhibit, which is all of the paintings that were in the collection or that had passed through the, um, the Salon of Villard, and the, um, or a lot of them, not all of them obviously, but, but that in, in a lot of the paintings that he observed there, there was that kind of unity, but to what, what percentage of great films, in what percentage of great films do you actually see um, that unity? Well, you know, this is a, a fascinating argument because it's not just unity, it's also disunity in the service of, an, of another unity. So, and because there are so many composite elements in film, it's not just the shape of the canvas and, and, and the type of material you're applying. It's, you know, when you're dealing with film, you're dealing with a written narrative, you're dealing with 
picture composition, you're dealing with locations and sets that have been designed and editing and music. And you're trying to find a form. Now that form is a multi-headed thing because it has to do with how you move the camera, what kind of dollies you use, whether you pop into slow motion at 60 frames, which is what he's doing there, and, and crank up the music and all that. So many options that uh, in every film it becomes a very interesting discussion of the myriad of tools these people had at their disposal. Why did they choose these tools? And were these decisions right? Now, we always assume, as viewers, that there weren't any options. But as a filmmaker, I know, every time I see a movie, that everything up there is a choice. The color on the wall is a choice. Somebody chose that shade of green. Not just green. They chose that very shade of green. And they chose whether it would be lit side, top, high, you know. And so you're looking at decisions that are being made maybe several hundred a day over a period of weeks and weeks and weeks. And out of this, you say, these people found the right tool. They created a form that fit their function. Or you say, well, they didn't. They didn't. They had a great theme. And they had good performers, but they couldn't find the bottle to put the wine in. So and that's what it, what, it, what it has to become. And in the matter of unity and disunity, isn't today's disunity tomorrow's unity? I mean, you know, yeah. when, when Manny Farber was writing about Bresson and in yeah. Femme Deuce, he would see the mismatch between sound and <coughs> But now, those don't seem like mismatches. They seem like Bresson's particular form of, of yeah. unity. Yeah, and, 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 and so, when you, when you talk about, uh, maybe the, the unity of form and function is maybe the wrong phrase. That's the old-fashioned phrase. It's the, um, the compatibility, the, uh, the sympathy of form and function. You know, it's like if, I wanted, if Sam Peckinpah wants to show people being shot from nine different cameras, all shooting at nine different camera speeds, which is what happens when the bridge goes down in Wild Bunch. You know, boy, that is a powerful decision and a very expensive one. Um, and, uh, and it may seem like a disunity. But when it's all put together, you realize that it is a, a different kind of unity. No, I, I, I didn't watch movies. They were forbidden by my church. So I never saw movies as a child. I came to movies um, as, a, as a college student. Uh, pardon? What drew you to movies? Well, they are forbidden. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, the first ones I went and often saw, I was, I was greatly sort of disappointed by because I thought, what's the big fuss here? You know, why are these forbidden? You know, not and then, when I was in college, a local art house started showing the Bergman films. And then I came, I came to film through the 
European cinema of the 60s. And boy, I don't think there is a better time to have walked into the door of film history than right then and there. So I was very fortunate. And, and, and filmmakers, like everyone else, you know, you, you never forget your first love. And, and, you know, and my first love was the European cinema of the 60s. I've never forgot it. And, you know, and, and you, know, you talk to uh, Spielberg or, or, or Lucas or Coppola, and they'll tell you their first love, you know, which came out of their childhood. And they've never forgot it. It's a question about, about the, the, the criteria. And this gentleman hasn't read the article, but he's, he's you know, listened to Paul's description of all the criteria. And the question is, are there any films that fulfill the kiss, kiss, bang, bang imperative of the business um, that he also judges artistically successful according to the criteria? I mean, one thing we haven't mentioned is that in the article, you do go into detail about rereading Pauline Kael's very, very influential essay. Um, Trash art in the movies and being. Yeah, in but, but but you know I think there are films that really wonderfully exploit uh, the, the the good trash impulse of cinema, you know, uh, and the, a number of the films that talk about, I mean, really great great films, you know, uh, Godfather. Wild bunch. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of Big Lebowski. I think it really, it really is alive as a film, uh, and it's very accessibly alive. It's not, you know, you know, it's as odd in its way as Blue Velvet, but it, 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 it it's not as distancing as Blue Velvet, you know, and um, and and films like uh, uh, Casablanca and, and Sweet Smell and Success. Uh, and you know, uh, you know, th they use the populist raw material of film. Lady Eve, wow! I mean, you, know, you can't. There it is. You know, a, a completely accessible film, but but done in such a smart way that it stands above. You know, the the simple marketplace impulse. Paul, before we wrap it up, I want to ask you a question that's based on something that you said once to me and that I've heard you articulate in different ways over the years, which is you, you, were, you were talking about the difference between being a critic and being an artist and saying, you know, laying it out very cleanly as you always do by saying being a critic, it's your job to um, do the autopsy and find out what made the patient live or die. Whereas when you're an artist, you just want to keep the baby alive keep the patient alive and so how difficult do you find it to switch gears well it is I mean uh, uh, you know once you've thought like a, a critic you know and you, you find yourself always sort of thinking that way you know why is he using a 75 millimeter lens here you know uh, also you, you and and it is the metaphor that you mentioned. You know, you critic, you you put the film on the slab, you cut it open. What worked? What didn't? What uh, what made this thing live? The filmmaker, you know, you're, it is about a nine a nine month term of 
those for some films it could be longer and uh and you're trying to keep that thing alive for uh, for nine months and you're trying not to get too analytical about it and you have to be careful because that medical examiner if you let him into the delivery room he will kill that baby he will take that baby out and he will examine it and then he'll say the baby's terrific and then he'll leave and the baby will be dead <laughs> and, and so you can't let him in the room and and and, and, uh, and it gets a little hard when you're the same person and uh, and, and, and part of it, you just have to say, no, we're not going to explain that. You know, and at some point you say to an actor, I'm not sure why he says this, but I know this much. He opens his mouth and these words come out. Now, don't ask me why he says it, because if I think about it too much, I may think myself out of it. You know, and there's something about it feels right. In the same way is, let's just put the camera up there. Why do you want to put it up there? Let's not talk about it, let's do it. You know, so you're trying to play that game of, of being spontaneous and a little stupid uh, while you're equally capable of being hyper-analytical. Um, at this point, we're going to sign off. I want to say that there are copies of the issue of Film Comment with the article that are going to be available for purchase outside the door. I want to thank you all for coming. And Paul, thank you very much. Oh, The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Oatmark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.com, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.com. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.